Is this this is an R sixty ninth episode? Is it? Uh uh. This is our sixty eighth. So next one's our 69. We have <laughs> yeah. to do something good. We gotta figure it out. I think I think this is our 68. I can't remember. I got the count off a little bit. Maybe if we don't have a good one queued up, we'll do a 68.5. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. We could. <laughs> we could totally. We'll do a 68 and a half. <laughs> yeah, sort of like the. Um, I used to read this book when I was a kid that was like about the 13th floor or this building that didn't have a 13th floor because it was bad mm-hmm. oh, what the fuck bad luck yeah but they had like a 12.5 foot floor oh stupid this, this is this could be a... a lot of buildings don't have a 13th floor damn yeah you're right most buildings Isn't actually funny it's like yeah, mad they it's just like go from 12 to 14 superstition on a massive scale right on on a, massive scale. yeah and you don't I feel like when I think about people who are superstitious, I don't think about construction workers that yeah. build things as people who are superstitious. <laughs> but, you know, we all got grannies. We all got granny witches yeah, you're with, right. uh, using home remedies on us, I guess. You're I right. Don't know. Um, well, hello, Trillbilly audience. Uh, hey. T- hey. Um, Terrence and Tanya here. Um, we just... Before- we married Tom in the backyard right before this episode. <laughs> Yeah, well, we put, we put him in that hole in his ceiling, sort of like oh, Jimmy yeah, Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're gonna just, close him up. Yeah, we're gonna we're fix s- the ceiling, but only <laughs> af- only after we stick him up there. Yeah, hell yeah. As an extra gift to Alex. Right, right. We'll, stick, we'll fix your ceiling and your boyfriend. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, I think this is the 68th episode. I hope it is. Um. You, what we were just recorded, and what you're about to hear is a pretty depressing episode. But we hope it's enlightening, and uh, you can share it with people who, um, you know, have an interest in these things. But more than anything, we're just talking at the front end of this episode because we want to encourage you to go to our Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. Patreon. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like a weird soap or something? It like, does. I don't know. It's just such a weird word. It really does. Um, especially people who don't really have any frame of reference for it. They're like, what? Yeah. So that's why I'm spelling it out for you. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trillbilly Workers Party. We have weekly episodes over there. Every Sunday we put out an episode. This Sunday we have an episode with Scott Benson, uh, our good buddy Scott Benson, who... Um, who we talked a lot about Christianity with him uh, <laughs> and Christian music, uh, growing up Christians. One of our yeah, true was... <laughs> themes. One of three themes. One of, of three our... themes, exactly. <laughs> on th- on I'm not, I wasn't there, so right. I'm learning this yeah. right now. Well, you were a backseat Baptist, and so me and Tom, we were really, yeah. we really bought into this shit, you know? So it's, yeah. I mean, we're I, now mining it for comedic material. I mean, I had to fake a holy spiritual, like a holy ghost thing one time just to get out of whatever was happening, because they were just like knocking all the kids to the ground, you know, and I had to just fall right. over too, like, okay, right. well, here we go. Well, we talk about that. <laughs> we talk about that kind of stuff on this episode. Just so they would leave me alone. Just so they leave you. Play acting like you're speaking tongues. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you've been healed. <laughs> I, I never could figure out the right. tongue. But. Yeah. The shame I internalized for years just because I hadn't been baptized <laughs> at 15 like all my other friends God had. Damn. Listen to this, Tanya. I 
was this explains so much yes well (laughs) most of my friends at that age were embarrassed they hadn't had sex yet i was embarrassed that i had not been baptized yet (laughs) (laughs) but see the thing is i won in the long run because now i get to mine like i said i'd mine all that for comedic material (laughs) that's the only way i process my trauma God. But anyways, um, I wonder how long it's going to take for Louis C.K. to use that argument. Right. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I was there all along. He was there all along. God. Um, so go to our Patreon. You can hear more st- uh, fun stuff like this. Today's episode is with Liliana Segura, who writes for The Intercept, and we really hope you enjoy it. And uh, like I said, spread it around, whatever. It Do is whatever pretty dark. Hydrate. It's very dark. So, yeah, hydrate. And if you kind of are squeamish with, like, needles and stuff, this is the closest I get to, like, a trigger warning, content warning. Yeah, you know, just maybe stay away from this one. But, you know, it, it does actually have a lot of interesting and important stuff about the carceral state and our relationship to it. Um, mm-hmm. So, anyways, uh, check all of our stuff out. And uh, do you have anything, uh, me and Tanya, oh yeah, by the way, me and Tanya are going to be at a show on Saturday night. Are you going to be there at that show? Yeah. At the Burl? We, we could sign autographs. Yeah. I mean, if people want to bring uh, a copy it's of- Not even our show. manuscripts <laughs> or uh, like a printed out picture of us. We did have that one good photo shoot. Like I'm ha- I'll am i bring a magic marker. I'll bring my own permanent marker. Hey, I'm plugging it like it has any, it has yeah. nothing to do with me and Tanya. We're just, we have massive egos. We just know we're going to be there. <laughs> And we'll sign your we'll sign your shirts. I'm particularly whatever. interested in signing boobs, but that's just uh, yeah, you know, whatever. Show your boobs to Tanya. She'll sign them. Um, Saturday night at the Burl in Lexington, Slut Pill is playing with Sonora May, and there's some... Luna and the Mountain Jets. Luna and the Mountain Jets. Yeah, it'll be a terrific show. Yeah, my girlfriend's debuting <laughs> at the Burl. It's her favorite venue. Yeah. No big deal. Who we've also had on the show. Yeah, y'all heard Slut Pill here first, many of you, <laughs> right. and you can hear them live in all their glory. Right. So please come in out for that. Um, my friends get paid. I like it when my friends get yeah. paid. I like Saturday. It. September 8th. That's right. Um, so, yeah, come on out for that and check out our Patreon and enjoy today's episode. But buckle up. But buckle up. We'll see you later. Bye. So, Very fancy studio digs here. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, Liliana, I'm Terrence, and I'm uh-huh. joined with my co-host, Tanya. Hello. <laughs> Hi. We, we thank you for joining us today, um, and I hope your day's going all right. I was just reading before I got in here about uh, Trump is pissed off that there's somebody in the um, his administration that just wrote an op-ed. Um, did you see this, Tanya? No, but I did see Tom tweet. <laughs> If y'all think there's a resistor in the West Wing, I got a bridge to sell you. Yeah. <laughs> I assume this is what you're speaking of. Yes, that's it. <laughs> um, okay, well, Liliana, we'll just get straight to it. Um, welcome to the podcast. Um, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you know, today we're joined by Liliana Segura. Did I say your last name right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, she, uh, you write about a criminal justice system and the death penalty and, and prisons. At the intercept, is that uh, an accurate representation of your work? <laughs> yes, I would say it is. <laughs> okay, good. 
Um, so yeah, today we're going to be talking about something that's a little more grim. Uh, kind of deviates a little bit from our sort of um, regularly scheduled programming of yeah, hold the dick jokes, right? Dick jokes and irreverent humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but we we do have a few sort of objectives in wanting to discuss this. Um, I'll kind of just sort of set up the framework for it. Uh, the first is kind of just a, you know, on this podcast we cover prisons a lot because it affects us <laughs> a lot where we live uh, in eastern Kentucky. And so we kind of, I've been kind of wanting to do an episode about this for a while, um, something that sort of situates or locates the death penalty in the sort of like larger context of the carceral state. Um, and also something that sort of examines its racist legacy, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, the sort of second objective for wanting to do this episode is um, there's kind of been a string of what I would call absolutely horrific executions in the media lately, but we kind of live in this world where like they crop up and you read them, you're like, this is terrible, and then they just immediately disappear, and there's quite a bit of apathy with regards to this issue in a lot of ways, I feel like. And so that's another reason why we wanted to cover this. Um, the third is to kind of try to make sense of some of some recent executions that have happened. And so probably the the best place for us to start, Leanna, would be um, the execution that took place last month in the state of Tennessee of Billy Ray Eyrick. Am I saying his name correctly? Mm-hmm. Yep, you are. Okay. So I, I just kind of wanted to know if you could maybe, you know, th- this was the first execution that took place in, what, almost nine years? That's right. And they're trying to sort of rush two more before the end of the year. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wow. what's that? I said, wow. Yeah. It's trying to get it in before the fiscal year ends or something. I guess shit, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were at the prison, the Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, when it happened, um, talking to some of the protesters and supporters. I just wondered if you could give us, and you, you wrote a piece about it. Um, it's in uh, in the Intercept, uh, obviously. I just wondered if you could maybe just give us a little bit of background and sort of political context in which this particular execution took place. Sure. So, so I guess. Well, let me just start by saying, you know, I, I I've lived in. I've only. Uh, lived in Tennessee for just over three years. I moved here from New York, um, uh, where I lived for about 16 years. And in New York, even though I was very much involved in uh, sort of earlier on as a student and sort of early in my career, uh, I, ha- I was involved in anti-death penalty organizing, and sort of those are my, my roots. Uh, but in my time living in New York, New York really didn't have an active death penalty. And it's been a really new sort of somewhat bizarre experience to move to a place um, where where uh, an execution was carried out basically almost literally in my backyard, you know, something like 20 minutes from where I live. Um, right. and, and so this issue that I've been covering in my work for, for years and years suddenly sort of came home. And um, and 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 so I'm still. I guess I I, I say that uh, just to sort of preface everything because I, I'm still learning, you know, uh, about the context that in, in which I find myself now yeah. here covering <laughs> covering this issue here locally. Um, so the the politics aren't as familiar to me as as you know they might be had I had I lived here all my life. Um, but but I will say that you know sort of researching. Um, researching Tennessee's death penalty and sort of um, reporting on it and sort of reading what I could. Uh, One thing that struck me um, 
in advance and sort of after the execution was um, certainly there was a lot of media coverage. Um, a lot of local reporters did a really, really good job um, covering the execution, um, contextualizing it, um, uh, especially when it came to the, the lethal injection protocol that was really controversial. Um, um, but, but, but given that we're in a major election year, in a major election year and, and sort of the, the kind of lightning rod that the death penalty has been traditionally here, um, it wasn't like this major political issue, you know, like there right. was not like politicians have sort of been happy to sort of, you know, ignore uh, the death penalty and this execution in particular um, as they've been, you know, on the campaign trail. Uh, it, it, you know, I spent a lot of time looking at archival news articles um, in all kinds of states, you know, just sort of in, as a part of my research. And, and even though it had been, you know, as you say, almost nine years um, since the last execution, it just wasn't kind of the major political event or controversy um, that that one might expect, you know, in a state that's 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 carrying this out for the first time in a long time. So, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> you know, I think, um, uh, you know, as we know, Trump is from day to day kind of. Uh, dominates and hijacks the news cycle no matter what's going on it can feel like everything is just kind of um cast aside uh right. for, for whatever craziness is going on uh in washington um and then you know and like i said before it's a big election year there's a lot of other things going on in tennessee it's a lot of other issues on people's mind but 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 as you mentioned before, you know, we've seen a, a number of botched executions, what we call botched executions, right? These really ugly uh, episodes where people appear to suffer and struggle uh, on the gurney. Um, and, and you know, this this appeared to be, be one of those. I, um, I only know what I heard from... Um, from sort of friends and colleagues in the press who, who witnessed, um, who were able to describe some of what they saw. Um, but, but, you know, the sort of what we saw play out was something that I've seen now play out in many states, which is that, you know, an execution appears to go poorly. Uh, it appears that, um, you know, the, the drugs didn't work as, as intended. Um, but there's no sort of acknowledgement of that on the part of the Department of Corrections or on the part of the state and sort of everything continues as as normal um right. and, and that's definitely what we've seen what we've seen here in in tennessee so um and i'm sorry i'm sort of forgetting the original question but, but you had asked me for this sort of political uh, and uh context um sort of what that looked like here on the ground and um and yeah, I guess I guess it's I agree with you that there's a certain level of apathy, um, but in particular among the people in charge, you know, the politicians right. who who might actually be in a position to do something about this. Um, there really doesn't seem to be a whole lot of concern over the humaneness um, of this process. Yeah, um, and I apologize. My question was very uh, very long. <laughs> I was known for these. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> yeah, um, what Tanya said. Um, yeah, no. So that's uh, that's a very good answer, though. Um, it, so it is an election year for governor. Are they electing a governor in Tennessee? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Senator. I mean, it's like I, I swear it's like every position is being, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. There's yeah, uh, there's there are a number of positions opening up, but yeah, gov the governor's uh, race is is the big one, and and it's just interesting. You know, it used to be in the sort of in the '90s and the '80s, you know, the death penalty was this major issue, you know. And now, right. I mean, I guess we we have you know we have immigration, we have all we have all kinds of different kinds of fear mongering. <laughs> that, right. that politicians, you know, are able to indulge in without the death penalty. Um, so, so it's been sort of striking, though, to compare that. Right, and probably maybe one of the reasons for that is because we're kind of in this weird sort of state right now. And and I'm just just sort of um, deducing this from what I've read of your work and and maybe in a few other places, 
where it seemed like for the longest time the death penalty was actually used less and less um, in a lot of states. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, some like sort of legal stuff, and maybe we can get into that a little bit. But it mm-hmm. does feel like we're in a sort of weird place where it's only used as either a sort of political buzzword, maybe as for sort of cynical political reasons, or sort of cynical, what I sort of deduced maybe from some of your writing, is it's also used in a cynical way in a prosecute. A prosecutorial sense. I'm not going to mm-hmm, be able to get mm-hmm. that. John just shrugging at me. Um, <laughs> um, mostly just because it's um, effective as a coercive measure, correct? Like people can get more sort of plea deals at, out of it by, I guess, I guess maybe prosecutors say, you know, if you don't admit to this, you, you know, you're looking at the death penalty or or what. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And actually, when I um, when I wrote my piece on Tennessee, you know, one thing I, I sort of love to do um, and have started trying consciously to do in recent years is to to find the authors of the of the sort of death penalty laws on the state and in, in, in various uh, on the books in, in various states. Um, you know, the sort of quick and dirty death penalty history that sets up our sort of modern death penalty era. As, era, as we call it, is, um, you know, in 1972, um, the Supreme Court case, Furman versus Georgia, uh, struck down uh, the death penalty across the country, or at least the statutes as they existed, and basically said the death penalty as it's being carried out, it's arbitrary, it's unfair, it's capricious, it's all these things. And so all these states had to sort of scramble to rewrite their their, their uh, statutes. And um, and and by the time the, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds, you know, those statutes or some segment of those statutes um, in 1976, you know, there are all these new laws on the books um, across the country. And what I've found is that when you talk to some of the authors of those laws, uh, the people who really thought that they were going to go and write, you know, a kind of a good, a new, improved death penalty statute that stood, you know, the sort of constitutional muster, um, um, a lot of those people who are still alive, um, you know, have a really different perspective on that now. And right. in fact, you know, either regret <laughs> their role in authoring wow. these statutes or or um, or just, you know, recognize that that in, in practice, the death penalty uh their their laws, you know, sort of failed to to ensure that the death penalty death penalty would be carried out um, fairly. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that in Tennessee, um, Tennessee's law, new law, um, uh, was written by a guy named uh, David Rabin, who I spoke to on the phone, um, I guess last month or in July. Um, just to sort of get his story of how, you know, what that looked like. And he's a guy who was more or less fresh out of law school, um, found himself working in the AG's office. Um, their initial attempt to um, revise their death penalty statute after Furman um, uh, had failed and they had to kind of start from scratch or they had to start, you know, they had to sort of rewrite it and that fell to him, you know, basically a kid in his early 20s. <laughs> and, yeah, right. um, and and he's the one who told me that, you know, eventually he left the AG's office. Now he's a defense attorney. He's had experience with death penalty cases. Um, he actually witnessed one of his clients' executions. Um, he he told me, you know, look, bluntly, uh, the, the real the real value of the death penalty to prosecutors is for that coercive effect that you're mentioning. You know, he's like, it's it's a tool to get guilty pleas to first-degree murder, you know, and he's like, and that's why it's so, so near and dear to prosecutors' hearts. And, and you know, I've heard some version of that um, from, you know, many people, and it sort of plays out, um, you know, I don't know what sort of statistics could show that, but but it's I think it's a widely sort of acknowledged um, tool in that way. Yeah, and something that I found so fascinating um, reading a lot of your uh, writing is that 
not only did they go back in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, try to rewrite a lot of these laws, but over time, lawmakers started adding more offenses mm-hmm. to the list that could be prosecuted by the death penalty, even though it was being used less and less. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So, what you're identifying? I mean, one thing that um, you saw in Tennessee, that we see in Arizona, we saw in in, in California, is is what uh, another another man I've spoken to uh, called aggravator creep. Essentially, that it's like you know the whole logic, the whole idea in um, in Furman was that the death penalty was being carried out arbitrarily, uh, which is sort of a code word. For, I mean, it, it was definitely racist. There, there was a certain like sort of level of acknowledgement that there that racism was a problem, but it wasn't sort of at the heart of the the ruling. It was um, sort of that's a whole other topic for a whole other podcast. But <laughs> right, um, right. but but the, the, what what um, what Greg v. Georgia in 1976 did um, was essentially say, okay, you know, the the, the death penalty. Um, can be carried out constitutionally along these lines, and it meant that there had to be a sort of narrowing. It had to be reserved for, you know, truly the worst of the worst. There had to be safeguards to ensure that it was carried out fairly. Um, and so, and and so, what what states did was essentially. Um, what the, what the court was sanctioning essentially was uh, that states had identified clear aggravating factors, you know, that 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 represented the worst crimes, and and only people who, you know, whose cases involved these aggravating factors were going to be eligible for the death penalty. Except for what states then did was expand, you know, start adding all these aggravators. You know, legislators started passing new laws, you know, amending their statutes to add aggravator after aggravator, and and so that sort of happens over the course of the next couple decades. Um, and and this was at the heart of a, a recent challenge to Arizona's um, death penalty statute, which, uh, you know, they were seeking, uh, there was a cert petition before the Supreme Court, basically asking the court to uh, to rule, make a ruling not only on Arizona's death penalty, but on the, the death penalty writ large on the basis that, that you know, the aggravators have, have expanded to such a degree that there's no longer a meaningful distinction between the first-degree murder cases that, you know, that, that get to end up with the death penalty and those that don't. Um, and you see that, you see that phenomenon on display um, in, in Tennessee. And, 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 yeah, even even today, you know, that, that remains true. But the, the sort of coinciding trend has been that, you know, especially in the past decade, couple decades, um, death sentences um, have been dropping precipitously. Um, there are just fewer and fewer being sought, fewer and fewer being handed down. Um, so, so it's kind of, a, yeah, it's kind of a bizarre, counterintuitive trend. Yeah. And so I think that's a really good sort of um, framework, a, a political sort of socio uh, social framework for where we're currently at. And um, where we're currently at, from my understanding, again, this is mostly from reading your work and a few others, um, is that a lot of states have uh, sort of drug protocol. I mean, we the predominant form of the death penalty in this country is lethal injection, correct? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, we have this sort of um, situation where you are, I don't know, to me, like, once you take it in a sort of composite as a holistic whole, you've got several different trends that are sort of contradictory, but the sort of effect at the end is just this really macabre um, situation. Like, I'm quoting from one of the women you are interviewed in one of your articles, attorney Christine Freeman. She said, the system pushes everyone into a place of unreality. Mm -hmm. And and I found that a lot with prisons, uh, just the entire criminal justice system in general. I mean, me and Tanya do a lot of work here at the station with um, prisoners 
in the sort of listening area around us. Mm. And and I found like that it's 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 not like that just with the death penalty. It's also like that with visitation, and it's like that with solitary. I mean, it's just from top to totally. bottom. It's, yeah, yeah, it's just really phenomenal because you've got these um, sort of like liberal politicians who try to make it not seem as fascistic and macabre as it actually is. And maybe like lethal injection is a kind of like byproduct of that, where they've tried to make it look like it's this um you know routine medical procedure i mean i remember reading in one of your pieces that in texas the very first lethal injection they brought out a gurney specifically just for no other reason than it just looked antiseptic and medical it didn't have any mm-hmm. like, real actual functional purpose and so I, that's right I, so i mean it's just like i guess i don't know is that like so i know for, so from moving from that to like the current situation you've had a string of what i would see say are just absolutely horrific um botched ex- executions there's one you wrote about in alabama um was his name doyle ham right That's right mm-hmm. and then there was one in arkansas kenneth williams there was um one that really stood out to me that was just phenomenal was i think his name is joseph wood was that correct in yeah um arizona i believe and that mm-hmm. took over two hours to try to uh, his execution took over two hours jesus yeah, and and um, they counted that he gasps for air more than 400. I mean, like, what what is g- going on here? Like, why, um, you know, without getting too deep into the sort of like medical and legal weeds, why why are these box botched execute? I mean, as you write, they're rare, but at the same time, it does seem like we're we've seen quite a bit of them recently. Yeah, yeah. So there are a number of ways to answer question. that and I, I guess i guess what i would say you know one thing that i've learned since i've been re, uh, you know covering lethal injection and sort of studying up on it is you know this 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 form of execution like you already identified is was always sort of a farce you know it was sort of it was invented in this way that was meant to you know have the veneer sort of put a medical veneer on, you know, what is actually killing a person, you know, right. sort of adopted the, not only the tools, you know, of medicine in terms of these uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and whatnot um, to, to kill a person, but then just all the all the bizarre sort of, um, yeah, sort of the iconography of, of a sort of hospital and a clinic and, and right. make it look like this clinical procedure. Um, but, but, you know, you scratch beneath the surface and there's just there, there, there's nothing there that you know. It's still murder, and it's still ultimately what what's been happening lately is that it's looking looking it's looking more and more like murder. <laughs> and and the reason for that um, is well, there are a few reasons for that. But but what we've seen um, really over the past uh, decade, almost a decade at this point, um, is that states have been experimenting with their lethal injection protocols. And um, you know, just to sort of back up, I mean, the the around the same time we already discussed, you know, the sort of history, late 70s history, when when the Supreme Court, uh, you know, sort of restarted executions um, uh, in 1976. Right, 1977. Um, uh, in Oklahoma, a lethal injection was invented for the first time, and it was invented essentially by a guy named Jay Chapman, who was a, a medical examiner, um, who, you know, sort of flat out kind of acknowledged that he didn't really know much about, you know, killing people, but he'd st- studied plenty of dead bodies and, and, and sort of felt like he could, he could come up with a, a way to, to kill people that, was, that looked humane and sort of... Um, and rational, and so he he came up with what we now know as the three drug protocol um, that was adopted from state to state. First carried out in Texas, as you mentioned, um, with the gurney and all of that, and and 
And so it was this three-drug protocol that, you know, the, the, the first drug was supposed to be this anesthetic, and, and, and by and large, states were using sodium thiopental, um, which is a barbiturate. Uh, the second drug was a paralytic, um, and, and this drug um, really should be uh, much more controversial. It is very controversial, but has uh, should always have been the subject of greater controversy because, really, uh, it doesn't serve any... Well, the Supreme Court has said claims that it serves a legitimate purpose because it hastens death. But in fact, you know, the main purpose that it, it, it serves is to hide the effects of any of the other drugs. You right. know, it paralyzes um, the person on the gurney, um, including the muscles they use for respiration. So, so they're just they're paralyzed. Um, and the third, uh, the third drug uh, is is the drug that stops the heart. Um, and 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 that's. Uh, so, 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 in this this protocol was invented essentially by Jay Chapman. It was really left to um, the depart departments of correction to decide which drugs were used and what what amounts of those drugs would be used. So, you know, they're right right off the bat. You know, you have these wardens and and people who, with no medical background, kind of being like, well, you know, these are the combinations of drugs we're going to use, and sort of states talk to one another, and 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 this three drug protocol spread um, across the country. Uh, so for a long time, um, you know, there were definitely executions that appeared to go wrong. You can find many examples going back to the beginning, including in Texas. Um, but the, the role of the paralytic was really critical in hiding a lot of a lot of the evidence um, that 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 you know the the first drug wasn't working as it was supposed to. In other words, you know that the sodium thiopental, if given in a sufficient you know amount, should should anesthetize a person and, and they wouldn't feel necessarily the effects of the the second and third drug. But in the absence of, of you know an efficacious dose of that drug, you know there was going to be a tremendous amount of suffering because of the way in which those drugs interact, you know, and, and, and have an effect on the human body. And especially the third drug, um, you know, there are many descriptions of what that would feel like to, to, to be injected with the third drug. You know, it's like being burned alive on the inside. You right. know, it's sort of these really vivid, awful descriptions of, of what, what one would feel. Um, and so, um, so, so there's plenty of documented, you know, sort of bad executions that were carried out um, uh, where where things went wrong. Not not even necessarily where where the first drug didn't work as it was supposed to, but more sort of pedestrian, you know, bungling of of um, IV lines. You know, people in prisons who are carrying out executions are not generally trained to do to to, to do anything, you know, of medical nature. And right. so there's a lot of, you know, setting of of, of IV lines um, improperly, you know. And so a, a number of botched executions actually are to do with that, you know, some of the grisliest examples, um, uh, the, the execution of Clayton Lockett, for example, you know, the, the, the drugs went, um, it, it just, essentially the, the, the uh, lines weren't, weren't placed cor correctly. Um, same with an execution in Florida, this guy, uh, Angel Diaz. So, so, you know, it's kind of a mess um, from, from the start, but, but the reason we've seen so many recently, and I think that the reason that they've gotten more press attention, um, especially a few years ago, is that um, so? So sodium thiopental was the drug that was being used, you know, for years and years and years. And then, um, and I should mention, actually, you guys are in Kentucky. You know, there's this sort of seminal uh, uh, Supreme Court ruling upholding uh, that three-drug protocol um, was was in a Kentucky case, Bayes versus Kentucky, about ten years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and that's essentially the Supreme Court. Um, 
was was confronted with, you know, uh, evidence of botched executions, essentially, and lawyers arguing that um, their clients faced a, an intolerable risk of, of, of suffering, of, of cruel and unusual punishment, essentially, because um, things were were likely to go wrong. And there are a number of examples um, shown, but the court sort of disregarded them. They said there isn't, you know, it's not essentially enough of a risk, and, um, and it sort of enshrined or gave legitimacy, legal legitimacy to the three-drug protocol as, as used in Kentucky and, and just about every other state. So soon after this ruling comes down, um, sodium thiopental uh, essentially becomes unavailable. And, and the reasons for that are a really interesting story. But suffice to say, um, anti-death penalty activists, um, this group called Reprieve that you may be familiar with, um, based in the UK, essentially launched a campaign to prevent um, uh, drugs from being imported to the United States for the purpose of lethal injection. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the main uh, source of sodium thiopental, uh, the manufacturer in the U.S. had stopped making it and, the, and, and attempts to procure the drug um, from, from I, I believe it was a, oh God, Italian manufacturer, mm -hmm. uh, were, were essentially blocked successfully by activists um, who then mm -hmm. made it their business to sort of stop, <laughs> stop uh, European countries from providing uh, the U.S. with, uh, with, with drugs for execution. And this this whole thing, there's like a domino effect where sodium thiopental becomes um, increasingly unavailable. States start seeking new sources um, in, in sort of increasingly shady places. Um, there's this famed example of a, there was this driving school in the back of a building in a London suburb uh, that was housing um, a company supposedly yeah. called Dream Pharma that was offering to provide, you know, hard to get drugs. I remember <laughs> and, reading and, about that. Yeah, yeah, and this is a while ago now, but, 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 so these drugs end up, um, you know, these sort of shady uh, providers um, ship execution or drugs for execution to the United States. Some of them have expired. Um, those drugs are also linked to, to um, tr troubling, if not botched, executions in various states. Um, I wrote, I think one of the first pieces I wrote about this was in the, in the Nation magazine, um, where there had been a series of executions in Georgia where... Um, where the, the men who were executed died with their eyes open, which is a, a major red flag that something, you know, even, right. though, even if there was no larger outward sign that they had suffered, as we've seen sort of more recently, um, they should not have, you know, their eyes should not have been open. It, it was a sign that things had not, you know, that the sodium thiopental hadn't, hadn't worked. Um, right. so, so fast forward, basically what's happened is that states stopped um, uh, carrying out the three-drug protocol that had just been upheld by the Supreme Court and started sort of experimenting and, um, you know, just, just sort of messing with their protocols. And, and Ohio, you know, was one of the states that really changed their – just started swapping out different drugs. Um, there was a period where a bunch of states moved to a one-drug protocol using this drug pentobarbital. Um, uh, then that started, you know, sort of uh, becoming unavailable. And so, so we've just seen – a tremendous amount of chaos um, and and just really like crass kind of grotesque human experimentation. I mean, that's really what it is because yeah. all each protocol sort of that's rolled out um, trying a new drug, um, it's never been used before. You know, there aren't tests <laughs> to be done. Um, you know, to sort of see whether or not th th this can kill somebody humanely and. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been actually a very hard phenomenon to follow because it's just this constant moving target. Um, but, but where we've landed and where we landed in Tennessee um, is uh, with this drug, this uh, essentially a sedative um, called midazolam, which was the which was the 
drug used to kill Billy Ray Eirich. Um, it's been used to kill a number of other people, especially in Florida, which is the first state to ever use it. Um, you know, expert after medical expert anesthesiologists have warned that, you know, unlike sodium thiopental, which is a barbiturate sort of designed um, for the purpose of general anesthesia, midazolam doesn't have the same properties and cannot, just simply cannot work um, right. to, to properly anesthetize a purpose, uh, a person for the purpose of execution. Right. Or go ahead, Tony. Well, and it's not like any of these facilities have a professional executioner or some shit on staff. It's like, can you imagine the backroom conversations yeah. about how they're figuring this bullshit out? Like, are do they? I mean, who, who are they drawing straws here about who does what? Uh, yeah, right, right, my right. sister-in-law is a nurse. Maybe she'll come in and help. You know, like right. what, who the fuck? Yeah, it's like it's your classic situation of, and again, um, you can find pretty much this. You can find this pretty much anywhere in our society. But it's this classic situation of people in positions of power who are not only profoundly stupid, and they're not even necessarily malicious. Mm-hmm. It, it's exactly. It's just that the system has like it's sort of terminal logic has brought them to this place where like. They're they're experimenting with certain drugs. I mean, just like when you detach yourself from from what you're saying, it's just absolutely insane. It's mm-hmm. just completely mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah, no, exactly, and that's why I love that quote that you brought up of Christine Friedman's because as she, it's it's it so accurately captures um, not only the the just like the surreal, you know. Uh, quality of, of the kind of experimentation that, that we've been observing um, and that I've been writing about for now years, um, but the, the also the just the shameless sort of gaslighting, you know, for, for lack of a better term, of uh, by sort of prison officials um, uh, to the, the general public. You know, basically, you know, I was in Arkansas. I don't know if you, you would have seen the piece that I wrote. Um, I read a series of stories last year when Arkansas, um, talk about trying to rush through executions, you know, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Asa Hutchinson, yeah, had, had, had decided, um, basically that they were going to try to kill, <laughs> to execute, uh, you know, uh, eight people over the course of 10 it, days or right. do I have that backwards? I think it was, like, I, I think it was <laughs> kind of a long day. No, no, no. Um, I think it was 11 people in eight days i think i think so um i've got it written I'll down Liliana, I'll tell you sure. a second. and the reason it's, it's not you know at my fingertips is that in the end i mean it was so chaotic and in the end they only managed to push through uh four executions right. and, of, and of course the reason that they wanted to rush through these executions this was you know uh over the course of a really crazy stretch um in april of last year uh was that their execution you know one of the drugs uh, in their protocol um was going to expire at the end of the month and and i would talk to people about this it's like they're like i'm sorry what they're like you, you know they they want to kill all these people in this short period of time because the drugs are going to expire like that's the big rush that's the reason and wow. and and yeah it, that that really was it really was it um and the reason was you know these drugs have been difficult to to um procure uh uh it, it just was just shameless, you know, and there was sort of no, there was no better explanation I could offer. You know, it was literally that was what they were trying to do. And you had this surreal experience um, or situation in Arkansas where, um, you know, there was a ton of litigation over it. Um, the governor, I don't know how much money was spent trying to push through these 
push through and you know beat back these legal um, challenges. But essentially, over over uh, Easter weekend, um, you know the, the great you know Christian governor Asa Hutchinson had a, an army of lawyers, you know, trying to um, push through these executions and, and ultimately succeeded in, in getting you know four, uh, culminating with the execution of Kenneth Williams and and what happened that night. I was at the prison that night. Um, that was an execution where. The witnesses came back, the media witnesses came back and immediately described, you know, that he, he gasped and appeared to struggle and lurched against the restraints on the gurney and all this stuff. And it's like, without blinking an eye, a spokesperson for the governor who had not witnessed the execution he was like, well, I think we can agree that everything went fine and, you know, right. there's basically nothing to see here. I mean, it was it was really staggering. It was like, again, the place of unreality, you know, it was just like I, I, I nearly lost my mind in the prison that night. And uh, I remember there were these BBC uh, documentary filmmakers who were, um, I guess they were making a film about all of this. And um, somewhere in the universe, and I don't know where, there's probably footage of me, you know, just <laughs> losing my shit with this spokesperson because I'm like, did you just hear what they said? Like, right. are you... Are you seriously saying this to us right now? You know, you just heard what they said, and you're just telling us, like, you didn't hear that. You didn't see what you saw, you know, and, and, and that sort of happens, I think, more more than anybody realizes. And, and, and attorneys who witness their clients' executions and deal with the system day in and day out are, the, you know, are some of the people who can describe it the best, aside from, you know, people in prison themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's one case I'm going to get to. Oh, and just by the way, you were right. It was eight executions in 11 days. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, there was one case I was reading where I think it was a prosecutor or it was a attorney for, it was the Chantry Court uh, trial when they mm-hmm. were trying to determine whether midazolam was, uh, should be used or not in Tennessee. And the attorney, I guess, on behalf of the government in that case they were relying on a doctor who was getting his information from like drugs.com. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. this, 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 you know, this issue, I think sometimes in my sort of, I don't know, leftist sort of radical circles. I mean, sometimes this sort of issue of the death penalty is kind of forgotten or, or at least it's like, not, doesn't give as, as much attention, maybe kind of gets pushed into this like realm of maybe being sort of like a liberal issue or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like for me and like with the carceral state in general, it just sort of strips down the, just all the pretenses of what the state, of what purpose it serves anyways and what crim- the criminal justice system serves. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it just shows you the sort of like, yeah, just the the violence and just the 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 bloodthirst at the center of it. That is, I I don't know. It's just it's just to watch them go to these lengths just to actually, for example, um, for them to actually have ruled that midazolam should not be used in the execution of Billy Eirich. They said that, um, and I might be getting this wrong. Not only did they have to prove that it wasn't constitutional, they also had to give an alternative. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And that's because, Jesus. and that's where, I mean, I think about this a lot. What you're, what, to me, the death penalty, it's, it's that sort of <laughs> the, the tip of the spear of this, this unbelievably dehumanizing system where, you know, people in prison aren't human beings. And so we can do what we want to them, uh, you know, whether it be solitary confinement, uh, whether it be, you know, medical neglect, with all the torture and inhumanity that we that occurs from day to day, you know, you see sort of in this unbelievably concentrated, warped, uh, you know, form in in, in the death penalty. And, and what's so striking about that that you just identified, you know, so, so this goes back to... Um, 
So there was uh, Bayes versus Reese, which was the Kentucky case that upheld the three-drug protocol, uh, the lethal injection protocol. Um, more recently, the, the controlling case log um, uh, is a case called Glossip versus Gross, which was uh, the Supreme Court basically um, ruling, uh, upholding uh, the use of midazolam in, um, in Oklahoma. Um, and and what what that ruling uh, basically forced the new sort of perverse standard that that ruling uh, promulgated and continues to sort of impact you know every case that we see is the standard that you're you're describing where basically uh, it says that if if a person facing execution is challenging um, their the you know protocol being used you know the the planned protocol that's going to be used to kill them he or she has to present an alternative a viable alternative uh, right. to the state uh and so literally i mean i talk to lawyers all the time who who are filing motions filing you know uh briefs in which they say uh our clients would you know prefer um uh, you know lethal gas um tennessee now the most recent thing is they're arguing in favor of the firing squad i mean these are <laughs> defense attorneys who are trying to save their clients lives and they've been put in this again place of unreality right like into this position where they they are advocating a, a, a different, um, more sort of obviously violent um, form of execution for their own clients. And, and, and their clients, you know, I've talked to them, what does it mean to, to have that conversation with your client? And, and they say, well, they understand, you know, that this is the law. And, and um, but it's, it's that in itself is just like such a perfect sort of snapshot of the, 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 the cruelty, cruelty and dehumanizing sort of nature of, of this whole system, but really like, you know, the kind of perverseness of the, of the death penalty uh, in general. Right. Um, so there's something I kind of want to pivot to, although it's not much of a pivot. I mean, I wanted to sort of the reason I wanted to establish all that sort of at the front end um, was because obviously maybe one of the biggest arguments against the death penalty is how, you know, how, how difficult it actually is to prove that the person you're executing is actually guilty of the crime that they say they've committed. There was a report that you mentioned in one of your um, pieces that was just released. Um, what was it? A Tennessee. I'm, I'm sorry, Lillian. I can't remember the name of it now. A Tennessee. That's journal, okay. Mm -hmm. Tennessee Journal like a, Law and Policy. That's what it was. Right. Right. Um, and they said uh, 2,514 people found guilty of first degree murder in Tennessee between 1977 and June 30th, 2017. 192 were sentenced to die. Of those, more than half, 106 people, had seen their sentences or convictions vacated. African Americans represent 14% of Tennessee's population, but 44% of its death row. And so, like, that, that to me just kind of, like, gets at the meat of kind of, like, what is the issue here. Um, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. obviously we've got the sort of uh, carceral state and its uh, sort of inner workings, um, but we know that a lot of it is mostly just an extension of what we would call, you know, Jim Crow laws. And, mm -hmm. I, and I don't think that the, um, the death penalty is really all that different and and i'm you know i, I don't want to speak for you but you know you had an article where um the the title of it uh the stepchild of lynching where you basically mm -hmm. connect the two and so i'm wondering you know again as you said earlier this might be a whole different podcast but i'm i'm wondering if we could just sort of look into that just a little bit like what do you mean by um lynching is the sort of ancestor of what we would call the death penalty yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, you know, when I say it's a whole other podcast, it's not because it's like a, a, a separate topic. It's just, it's, it's, it's the sort of, 
it, it is the issue, right? Right. <laughs> the heart right. of this whole of this whole rotten thing, and, and you know, and that's because of, of the history of this country and the history of you know uh, of you know uh, the experience of enslaved people and the evolution of of you know slavery into sort of what we have is our modern criminal justice system or punishment system, and so so that piece. Um, that yeah is a piece that I wrote um, uh, after visiting um, you know the Equal Justice Initiative uh, opened up um, its National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is the monument to to victims of lynching. Um, and and I knew that this um, you know EJI uh, as an organization um, for for decades has been represented uh, representing indigent clients on death row, not just on death row, but um, a lot of their work has been on on death penalty cases. And and what I've always admired about Brian Stevenson is the founder of EJI. Um, is the way in which you know he brings um, a sort of race analysis to his work. He always has brought. It leads, you know, he leads with uh, with a sort of analysis of racism in his work. He's built his career doing this, and and I think the first time I saw him speak, um, he was essentially addressing um, a room full of lawyers. And at the time, there was uh, something of a controversy, I would say, in the anti death penalty movement around how much emphasis, you know, do we place on race and, and sort of as advocates, as sort of as a legal strategy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he basically, you know, made the made the case that like. It, it, it always has, you know, it, it can never go unnamed. It's, it's always relevant to the system that we're talking about, uh, you know, in, in various ways. And, and um, so, so, so I've always sort of held that to be, I mean, to be true and, and um, went down to Alabama to go to this monument um, to try to try to sort of um, explore the connections that I've long known exist between, between, you know, lynching and the death penalty in the South specifically. I mean, those connections exist in other places, but especially in the South where we see, you know, the death penalty um, traditionally and still, you know, sort of it's been most um, aggressively pursued in the states that were, you know, the, the former lynching states. Uh, uh, that's, you know, you can see that, that trend very clearly. Um, uh, and so, so, I wrote that piece essentially to kind of to try to draw that line a little bit, and and um, the stepchild of lynching. I mean, that's really Brian Stevenson's. Um, those that those are his words. You know, he 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 draws that sort of connection historically between uh, extra extrajudicial, you know, killing for the purpose of you know racial control and and the death penalty. And you know, it's it's. It can be a hard line to follow to uh, up to 2018, but the places where you see it most clearly um, uh, are in the sort of early history. You know, the point, the turning point at which sort of lynching, um, you know, lynching reaches its peak, and then right sort of soon after, um, the point at which uh, the death penalty uh, becomes a legal statute and sort of legal executions uh, take over, lynching start to start to drop in right. the South, um, and it's kind of a. a, a it's kind of a stark um, graph but to the extent you can sort of visualize it, you know, um, it really, those two trends do seem to work in tandem. Um, but one of the most important uh, sort of, one of the most important things that I think gets lost about the racism at the heart of the death penalty as it exists is that, you know, the, those sort of early statutes, um, both before Furman and then, and then right after Furman, um, so much of uh, the death penalty, the justification, the rationalization for the death penalty um, was the exact same rationalization justification for lynching, which was that um, white women had to be had to be protected from, you know, black criminals. Um, and and 
you see the, the the sort of rhetoric in white newspapers in the South um, justifying lynching, uh, almost word for word, you know, the same sort of fear-mongering around um, this idea that without this penalty, um, without this deterrent, uh, that, that, you know, white women would never be safe um, from, you know, whether it be freed slaves or uh, from, from black criminals. And, and that, that thinking sort of evolved. Um, and where you see the, the, the starkest race um, statistics around, you know, sort of disproportionate uh, use of the death penalty is against black men convicted of, of rape. Um, you know, it's no longer constitutional. You know, the death penalty for rape was struck down um, basically in, in 77. Um, but, but in so many states, um, you know, rape was more than murder, you know, that was the crime that, that sort of was presented as, as the reason we needed, um, we needed either lynching or, or as it evolved, you know, a, 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 you know, a legal uh, death penalty, essentially. And so, so the piece that I wrote in Alabama um, was sort of exploring that, you know, looking at the places um, that were represented at this lynching memorial um, and then and then sort of doing a deeper dive into Alabama and how that played out and why, you know, how that evolved. Um, so it, it's sort of a hard piece to distill, you know, it's kind of a hard piece to summarize, but that's essentially what I was looking at, you know, yeah. and because I think to, to understand why we have the death penalty and why it looks the way it looks, um, you really need to kind of reach back that far and understand that, you know, that this was always about race and it was always really about um, about this idea that white women had to be protected uh, from black men. And um, I, I think, you know, I certainly had sort of lost sight of, of some of that early history um, and the way in which it continues to animate um, our entire system, you know, uh, sort of across the board. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um it's almost in a lot of these rulings in the in the 1970s, these Supreme Court rulings. It's almost like the elephant in the room that they just refuse to address. I mean, you said it earlier that it's racially coded the way that they talk about how it was being applied capriciously and arbitrarily. But what they mean by that is that it was predominantly directed at at black people, and it's mm -hmm. and, and but they didn't address that at all. They left race out of all of those rulings. Right, right, and it, and it's. You know, somebody who's written um, very well about about this that specific issue, um, who I mentioned in the piece, is, is, is Stephen Bright, uh, who's you know a very well known um, attorney who you know spent his career essentially doing this kind of litigation, and and he and, and Brian Stevenson um, handled the case of Warren McCleskey, who was a black man um, who whose case went up to the Supreme Court and became really one of the worst decisions. I would say you know widely sort of held up as one of the most. Um, a tragic decisions um, in terms of, you know, any hope of, of finding justice um, or, you know, uh, for black defendants in the courts. It was McCleskey versus Kemp, and it essentially it essentially held, you know, in a five to four decision that that discrimination um, in the criminal justice system was was inevitable um, right. and, and, and raised the burden of proof um, to proving racism in the criminal justice system to, to a sort of impossible standard. Um, and and, uh, and that, that case uh, is, the implications of that case, it essentially has closed the courtroom door on, on just generations of, of, of defendants moving forward because it means that, you know, you have to essentially show that the state was being deliberately racist in, in, in its treatment of, of your defense. You know, it, it just kind of was a way of denying what everybody knew to be true. Um, and, 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 and the same is true, actually, in, in the, 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 um, the ruling, the Supreme Court ruling that 
uh, to its credit, the court um, struck down the death penalty um, for rape. but in that ruling, uh, despite the fact that there had been all this ample evidence of, of just how racist uh, that was in practice, you know, just the fact that the death penalty was constantly being used to um, against black defendants accused of raping uh, white women, uh, the court in its ruling striking down uh, the death penalty for rape completely ignored race altogether. You know, right, as right. If it was like that wasn't even like mentioned in the ruling, uh, which is another form of, of denial. And so Stephen Bright, um, I think he has uh, he has this article that I, I can't remember now the exact original title. It's been reproduced in many forms, but it essentially uh, takes the Supreme Court and other courts to task for for this this epic blind spot, you know, where they just cannot grapple with 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 the real role that that racism plays. Um, in the criminal justice system in general, but especially in the death penalty, um, and just how insidious that 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 is, you know, because of of what it means to try to to combat this system. And again, it's another sort of kind of gaslighting, you know. It's like this this isn't, you know, everything. All this evidence doesn't amount to anything, and the system is fine, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, you you have a quote um, in one of your pieces from Stephen Bright, who says it's just crazy to put a number on it. Eighty percent of mm-hmm. all death sentences are in states from the old Confederacy. Mm-hmm, which is, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, you know. it's wild, you know. Um, it's wild, and and you know, one thing to kind of you know bring this discussion to the present that Stephen Bright told me a few years ago in an interview. I was doing a big piece about a, a Georgia case, um, and I find this a lot. I find this in Tennessee. I find this. Um, some version of this is true, I think, everywhere, which is that, you know, in its heyday, you know, when the death penalty was really sort of at its peak um, in the '90s. Um, all these—you just saw all these sentences um, coming down um, in all these different states against defendants who had, you know, shitty lawyers, you know, or the evidence is really weak, or you had, you know, really aggressive prosecutors who, you know, every single murder case was going to be a death penalty case. You know, this is kind of this wave of punitiveness um, and aggressive sort of, you know, uh, seeking of death sentences. And then uh, today, you know. That has changed for many, many reasons. You know, the uh, uh, capital defense, the quality of capital defense, um, it's much better. You have offices that are well-funded. You have, um, for better or worse, you have life without parole as an option now, um, and that's, that's had huge implications for, you know, the way juries and prosecutors handle uh, death penalty cases. Um, for, for all these different reasons, you know, laws have been passed to try to improve, you know, and, and reform uh, the death penalty in, in all these different states. And so some of the cases like Billy Ray Irick's, you know, this is a guy with severe mental illness or all sorts of problems in this case. Some of the cases that somehow managed to sort of survive, um, you know, the review by the courts um, and make it to execution, Stephen Bright calls them these zombie cases, like zombie cases from like the 80s and 90s that, you know, it was, they're the product of this different system, um, which isn't to say the system works today, you know, but 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 a person going on trial for their life today, um, chances are it, it has a much better shot, uh, you know, of, of avoiding the death penalty than, than somebody who went to trial, you know, in the 90s. Um, and so, so when we talk about these zombie cases, it's like there's a reason that so many of these cases are just, I mean, the, 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 the unfairness um, and the racism and the, the bad lawyering and the mental illness and all these horrible factors just leap off the page and you see it again and again and again. Um, and so, you know, and th- that's not to say they're the exception. I mean, it's almost it's completely the rule, you know, those, the, the, the death sentences that didn't survive, you know, didn't pass muster, you know, those people have either been resentenced or, you know, uh, 
in some cases exonerated. Um, many, many people have died on death row, uh, committed suicide, et cetera. So, right. so the cases that actually end in that execution um, are a tiny, tiny percentage of, of the people who've been sentenced to death um, under these incredibly flawed systems. Right. Um, well, Liliana, I don't have any additional questions for you at this time. Um, <laughs> kind of curious if you could tell us a little more about what the activism like the resistance to the death penalty looks like i was really surprised yeah. to hear about this like import situation that's a pretty wild and creative yeah is that just because form of resistance that i have not i mean there's a ton of shit i would like to keep from being imported into the u.s you know like it's like what a what a tactic fuck uh well i mean i guess that's because in the uk they don't have the death penalty is that correct i mean in a lot of european countries they probably don't i don't know what right this... yeah no absolutely i well it's a reprieve if, if you don't know reprieve it's a it's a group worth knowing um it, not just for their work on the death penalty but for you know reprieve um for years has been out front um uh doing a lot of work on for example uh, against drone strikes um i mean they're they're human rights lawyers essentially who are uk based and the way i got to know reprieve is through a lawyer who spent a good amount of time um in Louisiana, actually, uh, representing people on death row, this guy, uh, Clive Stafford Smith, who's the, the head of Repriever, at least one of the, I can't remember his exact position, but essentially um, he, you know, he and other people who were doing work in the U.S., um, uh, you know, they, they started out, or they, they were representing clients, indigent clients, and sort of all the same work we've been talking about. Um, he eventually went on to uh, represent clients at Guantanamo, and, you know, it, it moved back to the U.K., but but that office, um, yeah, has always sort of um, been involved, uh, or for years anyway, in, in um, trying to stop executions in the U.S. by whatever means necessary, and it, they've done pretty pretty remarkable work. Uh, Maya Foa, uh, who's kind of one of the main activists there, um, she's the person who's been leading um, efforts to essentially um, convince pharmaceutical companies to pr keep their um, their drugs from being used in executions. I mean, this is something she's still doing, you know, today. Uh, and it's, yeah, it is a really interesting, unique form of, of resistance. Um, in the Glossop case at the Supreme Court, uh, it was kind of surreal um, to hear uh, Alito and Scalia uh, complain about, you know, this, this guerrilla warfare that's been, raised, uh, you know, waged against the death penalty because all these activists have made it impossible for states to get, you know, the good drugs, as they sort of put it. Um, and so they were really talking about reprieve then. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, they, in a sense, you know, they're the victims of their own success in that as the more successful they've been in, in preventing states from getting, you know, drugs like sodium thiopental, um, uh, the more states, rather than respond, you know, rather than states saying, okay, well, you know, these drugs aren't available, maybe we should just hold off or impose a moratorium or, oh, I don't know, even abolish the, you know, stop using, stop executing people. Um, I don't know that I could have predicted that states would go to such insane lengths um, to, to just carry out executions anyway, you know, just, just substitute whatever drug um, or bring back the electric chair as, as states are doing or, you know, all the kind of crazy um, ends to which, you know, states are trying to do like trying to preserve their their executions um so yeah so that's that's one piece of the sort of anti-death penalty movement i suppose if you want to call it that um that exists you know reprieve is a great group doing great work um but i gotta say you know i there are national abolitionist groups um i think it's really unfortunate that in the past couple of decades um really a lot of the activist energy that existed when the death penalty was at its peak or executions were at their peak uh in the 90s um has really um you know it's 
for a number of reasons. Like it's just we just it there isn't a movement uh, on that level um, today. There isn't kind of a really active network of anti-death penalty activists um, that sort of you know spans from the local level to nationally. And I think you know I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but you do find, in my experience, you know, there's some really good, dedicated people who, who stand outside the prison and, and, and protest. A lot of them come from faith communities, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just not the kind of, um, I don't know, for, for an issue that is so rooted in, in, in sort of <laughs> racial injustice and racial violence, um, you know, it would be it would be awesome if there was sort of a more vibrant uh, activist push against the death penalty. But again, it's not it's not the issue that that people that affects people on a personal uh, basis in a day to day way, the way, say, like police shootings, you know, the kind of injustices that that launched Black Lives Matter. You know, it's 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 kind of this weird issue. You know, it's it's uh, it kind of what you said before, uh, Terrence, it's like I think it's it's got this sort of um, liberal um, the, the death penalty, anti-death penalty activists, yeah, come from sort of liberal communities that aren't necessarily identified with like the radical uh, activists who take on other aspects of the carceral, you know, system. So, um, so yeah, there, I, I, I wish I could describe like a better sort of um, activist landscape, but but it's pretty um, it's pretty local um, and, and pretty small, to be honest. One thing I did find fascinating, um, if there's any kind of glass half full you can take from it, it seemed like there was more protesters at Riverbend where they executed Billy Ray Eirich. It seemed like there were more, more protesters against the execution than there were for it. Is that correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, and as I mentioned in my piece, I mean... Um, people show out that in support with, of oh, an execution? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people show. Oh people yeah, showed up in support of an execution oh, yeah. just to like rally outside. Like, yeah, yeah. give it to them. Not only that, that Tanya. Not only that, they were playing. What did you? What was it, Liliana? Hell's bells. No. That's right, ACDC. Yeah, yes. that was no. crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which you know, when I was in Arkansas, so uh, outside the prison for for a couple of those executions, there were also um, people who showed up uh, to show their support. Nothing like. Again, in the 90s, when you had executions happening on a regular basis, I mean, there were people, you know, in Texas and Florida who would, you know, I mean, there was it was a whole scene, you know, like really like sort of bloodthirsty um, kind of circus-like atmosphere around certain executions. Um, I, I've never seen anything like that um, in, in recent years. You know, it seems like if anyone's bothering to show up uh, to support the execution, it, it's it's really a tiny handful of people. And so, so yeah, outside the prison that night... Um, um, it was a, a small handful of people, and this one woman who <laughs> I had a kind of surreal exchange with that's mentioned in the piece where she she was just flabbergasted that, you know, people, uh, you know, self-described Christians would come out to, to oppose this execution, and she's, you know, firmly believes that God wants people like Billy Ray Eirich to die uh, for their crimes and, you know, as a Christian. And she, um, so it was her and and then, yeah, this guy who was playing the ACDC and, um, but, but by and large, yeah, it was, it was, you know, dozens of people there um, to, to, to oppose and, you know, sort of stand and, and be counted, I suppose, against this execution. And, and as I mentioned in the piece, I mean, Riverbend is, 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 is very, is, Close, close to downtown Nashville, you know, it, it's kind of unique in that way compared to other other maximum security prisons and other prisons that, um, or at least where executions are carried out, you know, it's not some far-flung location, you know, you can go. Um, so there's a very steady kind of um, visitation uh, that happens. Uh, there, There's a lot of good sort of um, 
organizations and groups and people who visit death row on a regular basis um, and volunteer and all that sort of thing. So, so that was actually quite um, moving to see and to talk to some of the people who really feel, you know, really felt um, impacted by this execution because it represented, you know, harm against the community that they've come to know. And that community is, you know, the, the, the condemned uh, population at Riverbend. Um, it's, it's kind of rare that I've encountered that um, in other states. Yeah. There, there is some resistance to speak of here in Kentucky, but I think it's pretty like narrative organizing based and it might even mm-hmm. be faith based, but I, I'm curious um, how, what your experience with this strategy is. There, at, at least I know a couple years ago, uh, there's a man who was on death row in Kentucky and knew DNA, whatever, um, mm-hmm. revealed him to be uh, innocent to mm-hmm. the crime he was uh, convicted guilty of. And so then he was working with this um, abolitionist group out of Louisville, touring the, the state, telling his story uh-huh. about what happened um, in a you know, in an attempt to convince people that the death penalty is really archaic and not the way to go. And so I'm just curious. So that's really a, like uh, a strategy to change the public eye, change the public opinion. Um, but it just doesn't even seem like, you know, like is death penalty going to be on the ballot? Like what, you know, it doesn't even yeah. seem to me like that makes, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm just curious if you've, if you are familiar with this tactic and have seen it work, and like, what is the actual, you know, <laughs> short of blocking uh, imports of yeah, yeah. yeah what, what, what yeah. does the activism look like? How can people put pressure um, on this subject? Yeah, no, and and I'm glad to come back to that because I. I, I I, I don't mean to. I, I actually know many, many dedicated, awesome anti-death penalty activists who, 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 um, you know, have made it their work to do, you know, the work that you're describing. Um, oftentimes, you know, innocence is, is a really compelling, you know, narrative for people, and so, uh, and we have a lot of death row exonerees, and so um, there are many groups uh, who, who. Um, and many exonerees who have hit the ground running. I mean, mm-hmm. leave prison and and go uh, and speak to whoever they can speak to. Do radio shows. Do you know media uh, describing their case, what happened, and just sort of um, opening people's eyes to to what you know to the the basic fact that innocent people can be on death row and and these are their experiences and and this is why people should be concerned. And so so you know um, Anthony Ray Hinton is um is a, a recent exoneree, fairly fairly recent. Um, he was exonerated in 2015. Um, um, the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson's group, exonerated him, uh, you know, won his exoneration after many, many years of, of fighting. And um, so he's one of those guys, right? Uh, he's kind of a unique case in that, you know, he's become <laughs> sort of super famous as exonerees go. He um, he wrote a book, um, which now has been selected for, you know, by Oprah for her book club. I mean, he's, he's now kind of... Um, broken into the mainstream consciousness, I suppose you could say, um, with his story. And it's, you know, it's a really awful story about how he was essentially framed um, in Alabama in, in the 80s and, and uh, his experience on death row. And um, oh, so, so there are a lot of groups who, who host uh-huh. events where someone like Anthony Ray Hinton will come and speak and tell his story. And and and, um, and he's a really powerful speaker. Uh, and, and actually, one thing that I, I interviewed him um, earlier this year, and, and speaking of resistance, you know, I really loved... You know, there there are there's a lot of resistance that happens on the inside um, 
uh, in Alabama, you know, prisoners uh, on death row organize uh, and and have their ways of, of resisting. And, you know, I, I know you guys did an episode on the prison strike. You know, all of that organizing is really important. Um, and there's a long tradition uh, in Ohio and other states, you know, of, of, of condemned people, um, you know, trying to preserve their humanity and pro protesting executions. And one, th one thing that Anthony Ray Hinton talked about uh, is the way in which um, on nights where an execution was being carried out in Alabama, um, everyone on death row would, you know, would bang the bars. It's just like this deafening, you know, sort of collective banging of the bars uh, that could be heard, you know, out, uh, you know, uh, heard at the execution chamber, which was well, right next to death row, but could be heard, you know, on the outside. And, and um, this is, uh, uh, people in other states do this too. I've, this is kind of a, I've heard about this for many years. And, and it's, you know, a really powerful thing to, to know that that, you know, that's also resistance. And, and those, and a lot of, you know, those men and women have, have people on the outside, um, who who have their own you know forms of activism um and so yeah I, I i didn't want to sort of under um i certainly don't want to um fail to give credit to the people who are really doing this hard work in a dedicated way it's just you know there aren't um it, it's as a sort of national movement you know it doesn't have the prominence that it once had but you know groups like death penalty but there's groups like you know the national coalition to abolish death penalty and death penalty focus but then there's you know, I would say that some of the people working the hardest are these grassroots activists, um, like this guy I know in Ohio, a Bonowitz, who who uh, literally, you know, drives to wherever he can, where an execution is happening, and and stands outside the prison, you know, banging this this bell, uh, and um, and just sort of being present. Um, and uh, he he's part of Ohioans Against the Death Penalty, and has a lot of different sort of he's plugged into a lot of different local organizations. Um, but but those are some of the people doing doing some of the hardest work. Um, the other the other the other thing, you know, there's exonerees and innocents, but there's also some of the most powerful activists I've ever known are people um, uh, like this man Bill Pelkey, who founded uh, the Journey of Hope, um, which is a, a group basically of. Um, uh, primarily, it's, it's um, people whose lives were impacted by, by violence, you know, murder victims, uh, relatives, um, loved ones. Um, Bill's grandmother was, was murdered um, uh, decades ago. And, and they, you know, they all have sort of their personal journeys, but essentially it's a group of people who, who go on tour um, pretty much every year, tell their stories and explain to people why they're against the death penalty. And um, they're some of the most compelling speakers, you know, you'll ever hear. And they, you know, they don't necessarily all call, come from like a sort of uh, left political, you know, sort of place, uh, but they but they have a way of, of sort of humanizing the issue and making people reconsider it in a way that, um, uh, you know, that's really, really moving to watch. So, so yeah, there's, there's really good work happening. Um, it flies beneath the radar, but, um, but especially what you were describing, you know, people who, um, you know, have been cleared by DNA or, or otherwise have left death, death row. Um, those are some of the best sort of um, organizing tactics I've seen because, you know, it's that storytelling that really, um, really forces people to, to, um, to think about this issue. Yeah, I, I thought the the banging on the bars was interesting because I read that interview you did with um, Anthony mm -hmm. Ray Hinton and um, this explanation for that I thought was pretty fascinating. It's um, basically that like when you're on death row, a lot of the people in your life have abandoned you by that point, friends and family, and um, you know that was their sort of sign of solidarity. Just like if they if they could still they could hear, and this is interesting too because the guards let them do it. Um, there was mm -hmm. this sort of like under understood culture. I mean, I don't 
I don't know, get into like prison guards and et cetera. But, um, but it, it, I thought it was interesting that like, yeah, in the execution chamber, you would be able to hear those bars being um, beaten, being hit. And it yes. sort of reminded you that there was, a, uh, you had solidarity. There was other people out there who, um, who loved you and, and cared about you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, when you think about <laughs> when you the, the prison strike, you know, that's been going on is is so important. Um, what I think people don't remember is what kind of what even like sort of small acts acts of resistance can mean, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the context of prison. You know, that the the immense power of the state to just destroy you, to kill you. You know, right. uh, I mean, wh- wh- when you're resisting that in any way, and it's, it takes incredible courage. You know, and 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 I always thought, you know, the banging of the bars. Um, whether or not the guards let them do it, you know, it's, it was about a, it was about sort of, you know, insisting on their humanity, you know, that we may be condemned people um, and they may be killing one of us out there, but we, we don't accept it. We're still human. This affects us. Um, it's just, it's a simple, but like really powerful act. And I think, um, I think part of, I think in, in the interview that I did, the q and I did, um, it doesn't quite capture the full extent of what of how he writes about it in his book, which is really worth reading, because on the one hand, the guards let them do it, you know, quote unquote. Um, on the other hand, you know, he's very clear, those same guards, you know, are the ones who one day are going to, you know, escort me to the execution chamber. They're right. the same guards that are taking part in these, you know, rehearsals. Um, you know, they're, they're practicing carrying out executions. They may be a member of the execution team. Um, so so it, it's complicated. It's like, on the one hand, uh, you know, people who work um, in those positions, um, you know, in many ways get to know condemned people better than anyone and live and spend hours of their time, you know, in those spaces, um, and I'm sure they're affected in some form or, you know, in many ways by, by executions, um, but, but they're also playing this, like, unbelievably violent, murderous role, uh, and, right. and Anthony Rahinson just talks about the, the strain, you know, the sort of holding those two things um, uh, at once, you know, in a really poignant way. Um, I don't know why it always jumps out, but in Tennessee, um, uh, a colleague of, or a friend who works at the Nashville scene who, who um, witnessed Billy Ray Eirich's execution. He wrote a, a great piece about how dehumanizing that whole process is for everybody involved and how at Riverbend, at least years back, um, the, the, the practice, as they call it, the, the rehearsals for executions that they would have, you know, sort of on a semi-regular basis was known as band camp, you know, wow. it's like band camp. It's like they were all going to band or, or I'm sorry, band practice, band practice. Wow. Um, um, which is so twisted, you know, Absolutely. it's like there's things so twisted about that. It's just like this, 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 I don't know. Um, so it's, it's the unreality so yeah. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, I, I, I've never written a piece uh, in Kentucky. <laughs> I, I really would <laughs> like to, I actually, um, it's an interesting state when it comes to the death penalty. You know, there's a lot, a lot of that's familiar, you know, uh, from what I can tell, you know, that exists in other places, but a lot of I'm sure sort of unique dynamics, um, especially in the context of what you guys are more familiar with. Um, I guess it's been what, like ten years since since Kentucky carried out an execution. Yeah, it's, uh, I was in college. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I was working. You do. At, yeah, I was bartending at the time, and they were like covering it on the news, like around the clock or something. Like wow. two more hours, and I just remember being like bartending that day and. I don't, I don't, is this it being really surreal? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's not, it's, it's not, um, 
not used as frequently in Kentucky, yeah. I believe is. Yeah, yeah. One, one, one Kentucky thing that I do remember seeing, um, a pretty significant uh, headline, uh, I, uh, I, I want to say it was earlier this year, um, you know, in 2005, the Supreme Court um, about, uh, basically um, declared unconstitutional executing people who had committed their crimes as minors. Uh, it was a ruling called Roper versus Simmons. Um, so, you know, basically said, you know, if you commit a murder as a teenager, you can't be eligible for the death penalty. It's kind of crazy that it took until 2005 for that to happen. Wow. But, um, uh, and, and the Roper decision, um, like a number of decisions um, regarding life without parole and sort of juveniles as a, as a population, um, uh, was based on, on, you know, sort of understanding, understandings of, of the brain and, and how, you know, uh, at, you know, how brains continue to develop well, you know, well past the teenage years into your sort of early 20s. And just to show, you know, that if you're gauging a kind of level of culpability that teenagers can't be held to the same standard as, you know, a fully full-grown adult. Um, so that was sort of the science, the, the sort of rationale underpinning Roper. Um, and I want to say that earlier this year, a Kentucky judge um, essentially ruled, extended the logic of Roper. Um, to defendants, I believe, as old as um, under 21, so uh, anyone under 21, you know, rather than anyone under 18, which was actually a pretty big deal in in, uh, in terms of how how the courts think of the death penalty and, and the idea of culpability. I mean, you know, that's kind of a, it's a small tweak, you know, in a practical sense, um, but it also sort of acknowledges that, um, you know, that, that young people, um, uh, you know, continue to grow and develop and, and change um, and mm -hmm. are sort of evolving creatures. Um, I think that logic should be extended to all human beings. You know, this is not like you stop changing or growing as a as a person once you reach 21 either. But um, but it was uh, I don't know that I've, I've seen a decision like that anywhere else. Um, and that came out of Kentucky. And it was kind of, um, you know, Kentucky sometimes flies under the radar, but that was a pretty big deal in, in, in sort of, you know, uh, death penalty sort of legal circles for sure. Right. Um. Well, Lillian, I don't have any else, anything else for you, and we certainly don't want to keep you. Um, it is uh, a, an exciting Wednesday night. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot of stuff to do rather than talk to uh, two hillbillies about uh, <laughs> the death penalty. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it, though, especially, you know, I spent the entire day watching, uh, yesterday and today, watching um, the the Supreme, the Kavanaugh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, hearings, uh, which are just mind-bendingly frustrating because it's just all sort of political theater and meaningless right. and pompous and awful. But um, one thing that never comes up in these hearings is, is this issue, um, right. or even early prisons in general in any real way. Um, and so it can sort of feel sometimes like all of this is invisible and doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know? So it's, I, I welcome the opportunity to talk for an hour about, about these things. <laughs> it's, it's what I spend a lot of time thinking about and I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, um, we'll definitely spend more time uh, thinking about it and writing about it because, <laughs> uh, your writing is very useful. Um, and it's very revelatory and, um, and it's, yeah, it's just very great. Um, and so, so thank you for that. And thank you for your dedication to this. Um, and thanks for talking to us. And, um, you know, uh, when I get this posted or whatever, I'll send it your way. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. And, and yeah, no, I really have enjoyed, I've, you know, checked out a couple of the episodes of your podcast and it's, um, I, I've learned a lot actually, okay. um, the, the, the one on, um, the federal prison, um, yeah. and that whole sort of local fight was fascinating to me, like really, really interesting. And I can't say that I, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I learned a lot. So, so I'm just glad you guys are covering this in, the, in, the, in that way also. 
Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to that. Uh, that's one of the ones I sent because I was like, this one uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very informative. And <laughs> it's great. It's great. No, it's, yeah. And, and, yeah, I think it's really important that, that this sort of oversimplification of the rural, you know, rural uh, kind of population, seeing prisons as this great job generator, you know, it's kind of without acknowledging the, the the real dynamics at play and the you know the fights and the organizing i think that's really critical so it's, it's good for me as a journalist to be reminded you know not to make those not to sort of reinforce those um you know those sort of flawed narratives so right yeah well um so so yeah we can you could people can find you on twitter uh just like it's spelled liliana at liliana segura am i correct Mm-hmm. And, That's right. you, and you write at the intercept so everybody please check out her work and um we hope to speak to you again sometime soon liliana yeah no thanks thanks so much you guys have a good night absolutely you do the same And our people are different from door to door. Can't find no heaven, I don't care where they go. Oh, oh, oh.